beginning the talk this evening with a poem by William Butler Yeats called The Celtic Twilight. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even with a fiercer life because of our quiet. This evening's talk is about the pure and beautiful mind, the benefits of concentration, the wholesome states of mind and heart associated with the development and the fruits of concentration and also with the development and the fruits of metta practice and vipassana or insight practice. With this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome and beautiful states of mind, or as they're often called, factors of mind, the Pali word being chetasikas, that are associated, as I've said, with the development and the fruits of concentration and also with the development and deepening fruits of insight and, to varying degrees, also metta practice all of which includes a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness. The chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness, this quality or factor of mind that needs to accompany us through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka or basket as that word Pitaka is often translated as. So we'll do just a brief review of what this Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teachings. The first basket or collection is the Book of Discipline, containing the rules of conduct for the monks and the nuns and all of the guidelines regarding and governing and living in community meaning in this case a a monastic community or sangha. Though many of these guidelines can also be applied to living in a lay Buddhist community and living life as Buddhist practitioners in a family with a partner or a a group of people uh, and of course living with oneself alone because we're always in relationship 
to other people. The second collection or basket uh, brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third collection or basket is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has a pretty distinctly different character or quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a record of uh, discourses and discussions occurring in real life settings, which both of the other two baskets are very much rooted in. But rather the Abhidhamma is a, a very clear, detailed, and refined disclosure of mind and mental processes that combine psychology, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective into a unique and quite remarkable, actually, synthesis. And is experiential, meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it can be helpful and inspiring at some point along the way of practice to actually hear in at least some detail about some of the more refined <clears throat> experiential processes that take place in practice. To understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my own practice, I've found this information really quite interesting uh, in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, this understanding, can help to counter the fears and other potential aversive reactions, along with the made-up and sometimes quite fanciful stories and analysis, the misperceptions and misunderstandings, and the attachments, the clinging that can come up up in practice in relationship to what may be unusual or unfamiliar experiences, and even in relationship to our more familiar experiences. Some of which... uh, one of my Burmese teachers, Sayadaw Upandita, called the Dhamma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma <clears throat> speaks about 35 wholesome mental factors, 35 mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful, associated with the development phase of concentration, and with the manifestation of a very deep, uh, absorbed concentration, jhana, with many of these states also occurring to varying degrees uh, during the development and manifestation of metta, and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and insight unfold and blossom. 
29 of these wholesome and beautiful mental states, these wholesome and beautiful mental factors, are universally developing through our practice. Six of them are considered to be occasional and are wholesome only if they're accompanying wholesome consciousness. And this will all um, become clearer as we uh, go on exploring these various mental states, these various mental factors. The first five factors are active, wholesome mental factors that are a part of both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration. Pure concentration practice and also with the focus of attention that's involved with metta practice and with the first two factors also being necessary and active components throughout the practice of vipassana, throughout the practice of insight. <clears throat> the last of these three Uh, The last three of these five uh, factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during specific uh, stages of development and manifestation of concentration and the deeper concentration of jhana and also in relationship to metta to varying degrees. They're also active during particular aspects of vipassana practice. So these first five wholesome factors of mind, with which actually each of you are experiencing to varying degrees right here and now in this retreat. So first I'll just list Uh, these first five wholesome mental factors associated with the development of concentration, jhana, and insight, certain aspects of it with insight and with metta practice. So the first is in Pali, vitaka, which is the initial application of the attention or the initial application of mind. The second is the Pali word vichara, which is the sustained application of attention, the sustained application of the mind. When these two, vitaka and vichara, are accompanying wholesome mind consciousness, these first two mental factors are wholesome factors of mind. So they're called occasionals. Unwholesome application and sustaining this application of the mind on something unwholesome is possible, of course, as I'm sure all of you know from your own experience. We can have at times applied and sustained, applying and sustaining our attention on various unwholesome wholesome objects. Maybe 
harmful or hurtful or totally unnecessary or frivolous and unskillful and insensitive activities of mind and body. So again, when vitaka and vichara are accompanying wholesome mind consciousness, then they are wholesome. And that's why they're called occasionals. So the third is in palipiti, which often translates as zest or joy. The fourth is sukha in Pali, which a very brief translation, we'll go into this more deeply as we go along, often is translated simply as happiness. And the fifth is ikagata in Pali, which is translated as one-pointedness. So this first wholesome factor of mind, vitaka, translated as initial application, meaning it's the application of the mind to the object. Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. And in our case here, for example, the sensations of the breath at the anapanaspat. Or some of you, if you're doing some metta practice, uh, to the metta phrase. And maybe the image, if there's an image with the metta phrase. Vitaka's function, as it's spoken about in the Abhidhamma, is to strike at the object. Very graphic description in the Abhidhamma. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object. And as I've mentioned before, it's like training a puppy. Vitaka has the special task and fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, sleepiness and lethargy. Vitaka is very closely connected, very closely associated with intention, as we've already explored to some degree. Right intention or wholesome intention, as in the Noble Eightfold Path. Right intention, wholesome intention to direct the mind towards the object the initial application of the mind into the object. The second wholesome factor of mind, the Pali word again, vichara, the sustained application. Vichara has the characteristic of continued, as it's talked about in the uh, Abhidhamma, continued pressure or stroking, as it's said in the Abhidhamma, on the object in the sense of staying with it and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind on the object. And in our case here, it's the breath sensations at the Anapanaspat. Vichara temporarily totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt in deep states of concentration. And it weakens doubt overall throughout one's ongoing 
concentration practice. There are many wonderful metaphors and similes uh, in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma highlighting the difference uh, between uh, vitaka and vichara. And I'd just like to share two of these with you. Uh, one of the metaphors or similes for vitaka is like a bird spreading out its wings to fly, the initial application. And the metaphor simile for vichara that I've chosen to share is like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings, the sustained application. The third factor of mind, piti, zest or joy, Piti is also an occasional because only if it manifests with no identification or attachment is it wholesome and beautiful. The mental characteristics of piti can be really quite endearing, endearing and um, can be explained as delight or a very positive or pleasurable interest in the object. Its function is to refresh the mind and the body. And it pervades the mind and also the body in its initial stages with thrills, and, uh, which are sometimes described as rapture, though this word rapture doesn't really cover all of its nuances. It often mess, uh, or manifests as a mind and body quality of elation, gladness, joy, even merriment and mirth, exultation, exhilaration, and a kind of satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries, there are five grades of piti that are distinguished from each other that can arise when vitaka and vichara are in place and perking along in our practice. And I'm sure as I go over these that some of them will be recognized uh, by some of you as experiences that have occurred in your practice to varying degrees. So the first is called minor joy or minor zest. And it's said that it's able to raise the hairs on the body. The second is momentary joy or momentary zest. And it is like small flashes of lightning in the mind. Third is showering joy or showering zest. And this breaks over the whole body again and again and again like waves at the seashore. Next is uplifting joy, uplifting zest. And this can cause the body to feel as though it's levitating, which I've heard for some yogis, I've never uh, had an experience myself uh, or seen it happen, but I've heard that for some yogis it has actually occurred. Um, There's a story uh, 
that I heard from my uh, friend and co-teacher, Sadhu Vivekananda, uh, about a monk uh, at a particular monastery in Burma who were, would do his sitting practice um, in his, on his bed in his room, in his, his little uh, meditation hut, his kuti. Uh, and uh, he would rise up and fall over again and again. And um, it seems that uh, he uh, let people know that this was happening, which actually you're not supposed to do. But it seems that he did kind of let the word out that this was occurring. And um, uh, there were a lot of other monks that wanted to see it. So he it said that this a young monk, I'm saying he was probably young because he probably wouldn't have bragged about it if he was a little more mature. But anyways, uh, that's my opinion. But uh, <laughs> he uh, let it be known and heard that there are a lot of monks that really wanted to see it. So he uh, uh, called them and said, you can come look in my window at a certain a time, and uh, the window of his room, and watch the show, which according to what I heard they did, and he, the show occurred. <laughs> so this uplifting joy, uplifting zest. Next is pervading joy, pervading zest. And this pervades or floods the whole mind and body with a very refreshing, bright elation. And the Abhidhamma description is like a flood that fills a cavern. Next, as a factor of mind, a sustained PT, particularly a PT that's experienced much more as a mind state than in the body, it has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused and mindful and absorbed attention on the object, as happens with the manifestation of jhana, and sometimes can also happen uh, with metta practice, PT can temporarily, completely inhibit ill will. And when that happens, PT at this point is only a mind state. It's not manifested as bodily experience. So those are the um, five uh, manifestations of PT. And so now we'll look into the mind state of sukha, happiness. This state of mind is wholesome and it's beautiful only, again it's an occasional, only if there's no identification and no attachment to it when it's occurring. So it's an occasional. This mental factor is a very pleasant, happy mental feeling born out of mind contact with the object of attention, again, such as the breath at the Anapana spot in our, in our case here. It also could be uh, with a metaphrase and the object of metta 
in a, a deep metta practice. Sukha is a very sweet, blissful mental feeling born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. And so it's explained in the uh, suttas, in the teachings, and in the Abhidhamma as unworldly or as spiritual happiness. And it can be very, very gratifying, very endearing, a very deep sense of gratification. So consequently, it's very easy to get attached to. And so consequently, mindfulness needs to remain very strong and very clear. Sukha counters and weakens the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And although piti and sukha are closely related, closely connected, they're not the same. So I'd like to read uh, uh, two pieces from the commentary description of piti and sukha from the commentaries, uh, the commentary of the Abhidhamma. First, piti, joy. <clears throat> As I mentioned, sometimes called rapture, and the Commentaries say this, It's like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. This person sees a woman or a man and asks, Where is water? And the other says, Soon there will be a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you will get some water. Upon hearing this, the traveler is glad, joyful, and delighted, and then more glad and delighted when she or he sees leaves on the ground, and then people with wet clothes and hair, and hears the sound of wildfowl, and then sees the dense forest, dense green forest, like a net of jewels growing by the edge of the lake sees the clear transparent water and water lilies in the lake and is then more and more and more joyful, glad, and delighted. So that's piti. Sukha. Ease. Sweet happiness is like the traveler entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. And the commentary describes it like this. He or she descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns himself or herself with lotus flowers, and then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth, and lays down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so slightly, so gently, and says, Oh, bliss, oh, bliss. with the sense of ease and sweet happiness grown strong, enjoying the taste of the object, as it says in the commentary. 
So piti, joy, rapture, and sukha, the sweet bliss of happiness, are closely connected, but not the same. Piti gains prominence before sukha, and it provides uh, a causal foundation for sukha to arise. The fifth of these five wholesome mental factors is one-pointedness, ikagata. And it's a universal mental factor and literally means a one-pointed state. This mental factor is the primary component. It's the essence of concentration, be it a sustained and potentially absorbed concentration or a momentary focus of concentration, a momentary focus of attention as in vipassana, insight practice. One-pointedness temporarily weakens or inhibits sensual desire and to some degree overall weakens sensual desire and also weakens one's tendency towards being blindly, being habitually caught in various aspects of sensual desire when there's a mature momentary focus of attention or more sustained uh, ongoing focus of attention uh, supported by strong mindfulness, both of which are necessary conditions for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. The function of ikagata is that one is able to very closely contemplate the object. Though it can't perform this function on its own. It requires the joint or the cooperative effort or action, we could say, of the other four factors that we've just explored. So it doesn't just pop up out of the blue by itself. It requires the joint and cooperative action of the other four factors, each performing its own special function. Again, vitaka, applying the attention along with all of the associated states on the object. Vichara, sustaining the attention. Again, along with all the other associated mental states on the object. And piti, bringing delight and interest in relationship to the object. And sukha, experiencing a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. With the manifestation of jhana, there's a sweet happiness uh, in the manifestation of jhana itself. It's not uh, on the breath at that point. So these are the first five wholesome factors of mind that are associated with the development of concentration, maybe jhana for some people, and to some degree metta practice, and to some degree 
some aspects of insight practice. And I imagine that, or suspect that, you recognize some of these, that there are some of these are happening for sure, to varying degrees, for each of you uh, during this retreat. So going on now to look at the other beneficial factors of mind somewhat more briefly uh, that are associated with concentration and again uh, metta practice and insight practice. So decision or resolve, the Pali word is adimoka. And this is also an occasional as it's wholesome only if it's associated with wholesome with a, a wholesome object of consciousness. Adimoka literally means the releasing of the mind onto the object. And so it's rendered as decision or resolution. It has the characteristic of conviction. And the function of not kind of groping around for something. It manifests, in fact, as decisiveness regarding the object of attention. And its nearest and most immediate cause is that it needs something to be convinced of, needs something to be decisive about. So, for example, in our case here, making a resolve to give one's complete attention to the breath at the spot, or maybe to a metta phrase if you're doing a little bit of metta practice or to the particular object of metta. Adimoka in the Abhidhamma Pitaka has been compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. So next, looking at energy, and the Pali word is virya. And this is also an occasional, it's an occasional wholesome state of mind. Wholesome only when it's associated with a wholesome activity in practice. Virya is the state or the action of one who is vigorous. Its characteristic is exertion and supporting or mobilizing, or in the Abhidhamma Bhittaka, the word used is marshalling. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with, and it manifests as non collapsing, the mind not collapsing. The closest cause for this energy, this vitak or uh, virya, to manifest is a sense of urgency, spiritual urgency, or possibly engaging in an experience that arouses energy, which could be as simple as taking a refreshing or brisk walk, or maybe doing 15, 20 minutes of mindful yoga or 
Tai Chi or maybe Qi Kong or some sort of mindful exercise or any wholesome activity actually that stirs and inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action, in this case meaning towards energetic practice. So the next wholesome factor of mind we'll look at is wholesome desire. And the Pali word is chanda, meaning the desire to act, the desire to perform an action or to achieve a result. And this kind of desire needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire that stems from greed or stems from lust. Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. It can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal as in relationship to our practice. And it's spoken about metaphorically in the Abhidhamma, uh, in the commentaries, as the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. So there's a very long list of 27 uh, universal beautiful factors or states of mind, and some of which we've mentioned uh, this evening and uh, as the retreat's gone along, we've mentioned and explored some, and others that we will be exploring a little bit this evening, and then uh, some as we go along as the retreat continues. So I'm just going to go through them uh, one by one, not with a lot of explanation, with hardly any explanation. It's more like a list. So faith, mindfulness, moral shame, which in Pali is hiri, and moral dread, which we'll talk about these a little bit more uh, towards the end of the talk. Moral dread or fear of wrongdoing, otapa in Pali. These two beautiful mental factors, hiri and otapa, are considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection of the family, the protection of the community, the world, and for the protection in all of our relationships, in relationship to all of our relationships. So going on, non-greed, non-hatred, Neutrality of mind and heart, which is associated with equanimity, as we explored last evening. Tranquility of mind and heart, which is extensive deep calmness. Tranquility of consciousness. Lightness of mind and heart. Brightness, we could say. The opposite of heaviness, the opposite of the sinking of the mind and heart and consciousness. Lightness lightness of consciousness. Malleability of mind and heart. Non-rigidity, meaning non-rigidity of mind and heart. Malleability of consciousness. 
wieldiness of mind and heart. The ability for the mind heart to go where it needs to go. The wieldiness of it. Wieldiness of consciousness. Proficiency of mind and heart, meaning the clarity and the quickness of the mind and heart. Proficiency of consciousness. Honesty. Uprightness of mind, heart. Honesty and uprightness of consciousness. The next, uh, uh, next are the four divine abidings, or Brahmaviharas, or uh, uh, the very beautiful and wholesome uh, divine abidings of the heart and mind. So this is metta, unconditional loving kindness, karuna, boundless or unconditional compassion. Appreciative joy, empathetic joy, which is mudita. And lastly, upeka, equanimity, the four divine abidings. Beautiful and wholesome qualities of heart and mind. There are three more uh, beautiful mental factors, and they're called the abstinences. And there are three distinct uh, mental factors that the Buddha very often spoke about that come about through three different types or three different levels of abstinence. And all three of these are very important for the development of concentration and very important for the development of insight. The first is called the natural abstinence, our natural abstinence, meaning the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm. Classically, those are called evil deeds. I don't usually use that word. So, um, Mental and physical deeds that cause harm. Uh, when the opportunity to arises, or when the opportunity arises to engage in them, due to various conditions, uh, various particular circumstances, uh, such as maybe one's social position, one's age, maybe it has to do with one's level of education, uh, the particular circumstances uh, in one's life at any given moment. This abstinence is that we naturally abstain from these mental and physical harmful deeds out of our innate wisdom and our innate compassion. The second abstinence that the Buddha spoke about is by undertaking the precepts. The commitment to live one's life observing the precepts. So abstaining basically the five, abstaining from killing, abstaining from harmful speech, stealing, sexual misconduct, and taking intoxicants. The third is abstinence by eradication, which actually comes about 
through the fruits of engaging in the supramundane path of the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind, the purification of consciousness, the Buddha Dhamma path of awakening, of liberation. And what is eradicated? What's eradicated, this is very profound, what is eradicated is any disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. Really quite an amazing possibility. Absolutely no inclination to engage in any deeds that cause harm. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) The first two abstinences are mundane, they're common, they're ordinary in the worldly sense. While this last one, this uh, is supramundane, meaning it's not at all common in the worldly sense, but is a purified, is of a very purified, spiritually purified nature. The second level of abstinence regarding undertaking the precepts that I mentioned are the beautiful and uh, basically the beautiful and three, or I'll speak about uh, the beautiful and wholesome three abstinences in relationship to observing the precepts. So again, related specific, uh, more specific ways uh, in uh, in regards to the second abstinence that we've already taken a bit of a look at. The first of these is right speech, what's called right speech classically. So a very deliberate abstinence from wrong speech, meaning deliberately abstaining from false speech, slanderous speech, harsh speech, and frivolous talk. And this is a really difficult one. Uh, when I was the resident teacher at the Insight Meditation Society for staff for a number of years, and we would have our weekly um, Dharma meetings, one of the things that came up quite often was that right speech was the hardest for people in their daily life to observe. It's a lot of learning. We learn, we learn from uh, when it pops out of our mouth, as it does. <laughs> the words just seem to pop right out. Uh, we learn from that over and over and over. And we do really learn, and our speech changes. The second is right action. The deliberate abstinence from wrong or harmful bodily actions. Uh, The ones that are classically listed are killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. All of these are a process of learning as we make a commitment to live by the precepts. The last is right livelihood. 
deliberate abstinence from wrong livelihood. And classically, this is listed as such as dealing in poisons, dealing in weapons, intoxicants, animals for slaughter, or people to be used in unwholesome or in in harmful ways. So these three abstinences function as a kind of shrinking back from harmful deeds. And they manifest as the abstinence from these deeds. The closest and most pertinent causes for this are the special and beautiful qualities of faith, faith in the Dharma, faith in the Buddha, faith in the Sangha, faith in ourself, faith in the practice. All of this develops and grows as we continue practicing. And of shame in engaging in harmful deeds, the hiri uh, and otapa, fear of wrongful doing, of, of wrongdoing, hiri and otapa, and having few wants and wishes. We could say that all three of these beautiful mental factors can be regarded as the mind, as the heart's wholesome aversion to wrongdoing. The last of this long list of wholesome and beautiful mental factors, of wholesome and beautiful mental states of mind that develop through our practice is non-delusion. The wisdom faculty, the wisdom factor, the wholesome and beautiful mental factor of understanding, and eventually the wholesome and beautiful mental factor of liberating insight, which is really the essence of our path of practice, this path of the heart and mind. And some words from Carlos Castaneda regarding this. A person of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it and then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. The importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice experience, your own practice experience of concentration and mindfulness as these practices, as your practice continues and blossoms, is that with knowledge of what is occurring, and why it's occurring. We have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, recognize, and know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear and 
other aversive reactions and without misunderstanding and misconceptions, but rather with what is classically called dispassion, which is what allows the continuing development and blossoming of our practice to just keep on unfolding and unfolding. In some words from the Buddha, this is from the Samyutta Nikaya, a very brief sutta, and the title of it is, How Did the Buddha Dwell? And this is the Buddha's speaking. Bhikkhus, or yogis, or bhikkhunis, Mindfulness with breathing, anapanasati, that one has developed and made much of, has great fruit and great benefit. Even I myself, before awakening, when not yet enlightened, while still a bodhisattva, a Buddha-to-be, lived in this dwelling, this way of life, for the most part. When I lived mainly in this dwelling, The body was not stressed, the eyes were not strained, and my mind was released from the asavas, or the corruptions, the cankers, the hindrances, released from unwholesome states through non-attachment. For this reason, should anyone wish, may my body not be stressed, may my eyes not be strained, may my mind be released from the asava through non-attachment, then that person ought to attend carefully with his heart and mind to this mindfulness with breathing meditation, said the Buddha. In their fullness, in their utmost maturity, these wholesome and beautiful qualities, these wholesome and beautiful capacities of mind are the wholesome and beautiful qualities and capacities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. As we come to the end of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer you... uh, some advice from Robert Piercig from his book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Some of you may have read this book at some point. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate one's self from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work, which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all.
In closing our talk this evening with some words from the 11th century Tibetan master Atisha. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming to the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. Let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.